Welcome to Emmaus Church. My name's Nathan. I'm really glad you're here. It's good to see you. Happy New Year. This is the first year of the Christian year, according to the Christian calendar, begins today. The New Year starts on Advent, the first week of Advent. There we go. Thanks. Um, and, uh, and so we're kicking off a new year with the anticipation of the coming of Christ. So uh, before I jump into that, let me, let me invite you to grab a Bible. I was ready to rock and roll already. So hold your hand up if you like a Bible. We're going to be, I'm going to end in um, John chapter 7. And that is on page, I think, 700, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, chapter 7, yeah, 745. So um, in, in these Bibles are communication cards, so if you're new with us or new after a while, or you have a comment or a prayer you'd like to pass off, you can, you can grab um, a communication card, and we'll pick one up in a few minutes when I'm done teaching. All right, so welcome if you're new with us. I'm so glad you're here. Also... Um, we, wanted to, we, inv- we wanted to invite the whole church to read this devotional. It's called Preparing for Jesus by a guy named Walter Wangren, um, really gifted writer. And this is a, like a, a daily devotional reading for the season of Advent. It turns out they're out of print, so we were only able to get uh, uh, like one box of them. Um, and I hear there's one more in the bookstore. Someone's welcome to this one if you'd like to, to pick this one up. I'll just leave it up here. Um, but if you're looking for a way to get into kind of prepare your hearts for Christmas, if you need something to kind of push back against the, just the onslaught of sales and another sale and another sale and just the kind of the commercial emphasis of the, of the se- um, season, I would encourage this book as a way to kind of write your focus during the days of this great season. All right. Good. So uh, today's first Sunday Advent, and it is this season. It's one of the two seasons of the Christian year where we really are focusing on anticipation, something big that's about to happen. Um, first is Advent, leads up to Christmas. The second is Lent, it leads up to Easter. And in, the, in terms of this um, anticipation for this season of uh, Christmas, it's actually kind of a three-part anticipation. There's a past piece, and there's a present piece, and there's a future piece. Uh, so in regard to the past, we're looking back to the coming of Christ as a baby into the world, the coming of God into the world as a human, like one of us. And we read these accounts, these gospel accounts uh, that tell the story of the coming of Christ. In terms of a present level of anticipation, we kind of look inward and we look upward in anticipation of Christ's coming again into our own lives, right? So it's not just historical, it's present and spiritual. It's, it's mysterious. There's a sense in which God wants to come into our lives here and now, right? Whether for the first time or to come in again. And then um, there's a sense in which there's uh, like a future anticipation in which we're looking forward to the return of Christ, which is one of the main themes of the writings of the New Testament. It can be uh, de-emphasized because it's been 2,000 years since Christ's initial coming, but to be faithful in our understanding of Christianity, it's to say that, yeah, the, the, the promise is for Christ to return again, to establish his kingdom on earth, All right? So uh, it's a season called Advent, and it's a big deal, and we, we decorate because of that, and we, we uh, try to draw our attention, and not just on an intellectual level, but on a multi-century level, a holistic level. And I want to say thank you to those of you who spent the week in here decorating. Thanks to Gene, who created these beautiful banners, and this one here on the altar table. It's, it's good to have this space to decorate. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, last... 
Last uh, Christmas, we were here, but the church we were renting the theater back to, Summit Church, they were still meeting here. So we didn't get to decorate. And this is our first time to be able to decorate for the season. And so that was, uh, that was fun. It was a lot of work, and it was fun. And um, I had to get a bigger truck to get a bigger tree. It always makes me feel a little bit inferior when I have to say to somebody, can I have, can I have your truck? Um, Right, so it's this, it's this season called Advent, and, and the word Advent uh, is by the time that the church calendar kind of got structured and formalized, the church was doing business in Latin. And so the word is Adventus, right, which, which means the coming or the arrival or the approach. Um, typically, though, it's used in a verb sense, meaning like I come or I arrive or I am coming, which leaves us asking the question, Who? Who is coming next week? And that's what I want to focus on today, just to kind of give you a peek into what's happening for the rest of Advent. Uh, next week, I'm team teaching with a friend of mine, Joshua Rubenstein, who's a Jewish rabbi, and I'm super excited for that. It's going to be really interesting. So today we're asking who's coming. Next week, we'll ask who is waiting, and we'll hear uh, who is waiting from a Jewish perspective, who is waiting from a Christian perspective. Um, and then week three of Advent, our, Advent, our friend, um, a, boy, hope I can speak, Joshua, aha, we'll be back. And he, <laughs> thanks. <laughs> yeah. uh, appreciate that. He's going to ask the question, answer the question, how do we prepare? And then I'll be up on Christmas Eve, which is Advent 4, and I'll talk about when is he coming? When will he arrive? All right. All right. So today's question is, um, who is coming? And clearly, this is a central question, right? Clearly, this is a critical question. So last week, when we were having dinner, my family and I, there was a knock on the door, and we all just stopped and looked up, like you do when there's a knock on the door, right? Everybody stops talking. It kind of interrupts anything that's happening. And for a minute, we're all focused on, on one thing. We all understand this so well that we're conditioned in this way so that if I were to say to you, knock, knock, you would say to me, that's right, because we just know that's how you do it, right? When there's a knock-knock or when there's a ding-dong, the question is like, well, who's there? Who's at the door? And, and that's, that's, that's what we think, and that's what we do. If it's the neighbor kid, then that's good news, and we let him in. And if it's the solar panel salesman of the week, we pretend we're not around, and uh, we don't answer the door, act like we're not home. So on Thanksgiving night, it's interesting, on Thanksgiving night, like 2 in the morning, there's a really, really loud knock on our door, 2 in the morning. And then ding dong, ding dong, ding dong, and then more knocks, and then more rings, and more knocks. It was incessant. It was dramatic. It was like violent and frantic and like crazy. You know, you wake up out of your sleep and you're like trying to figure out which way is up. And, and I get to the door, probably takes me about 15 seconds. By the time I'm out of bed, Carmen's out of bed, she's moving towards the kids. She's going to rescue the kids, and we're going to get the, you know, like the backup hard drives. And I don't know what's going to happen, but there's the door, and we open it up. I didn't even look through the peephole. Because it was just so, it wasn't like any resting. It was just, I was like, sure it was going to be, I'm thinking, who died? I'm thinking, who's dying? I'm thinking, who invaded us? You know, I'm thinking, there's a fire and we're going to have to get evacuated or something. So I opened the door and it's the police. Right. And you know what he said? He said, your garage door is open. That's right. <laughs> That's what he said. You know what I said? Thank you very much. <laughs> yep. And then it took me like an hour to get my heart rate back down to semi-normal because I was just sure I was going to get some terrible news about somebody that I care about or some sort of violent thing that had happened outside of our door, right? Because this is what happens. Uh, and so when, when you hear that knock, 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 that gets your attention. And, and, when, and the next question is, well, who's there, 
right? Who's at the door? Because that changes everything. On one extreme end is the violent, uh, worrisome, confusing, who's at the door, this can't be good, really bad news, kind of middle of the night experience. On the other extreme of expectation is this I can't wait. I've been longing for this. It's my kid come home from college. It's my grandma I haven't seen for a year. We've been preparing, and you just can't wait to hear the knock on the door. It's interesting, isn't it? It can wake you out of your sleep in a horror, or it can be like the best news you've heard. It's the same knock, essentially, but the difference is simply the question, who's there? Right? Who's there? That changes the tone for the whole thing. Knock, knock gets your attention. The answer to the question, who's there? makes all the difference. So the season of Advent is like a knock on the door. And the first question that it invites us to consider is, well, who is there? Who is coming? Throughout the Old Testament, the writers are expecting someone to come. Now, um, I'm going to give you a bunch of history here, and it matters. Um, so I'm going I'm to try to roll this out clearly and slowly. I, I, I may have done it a little too fast the first time. The, the, the Jewish people are full of expectation. The writers of scripture are expecting someone to knock on the door. It's a sense of anticipation that is so thick and so deep that it just shapes. It's like it's woven into the Jewish view of the world. They're expecting someone to come. Specifically, they're expecting the Messiah to come. Have you heard the word Messiah? Right? You're familiar with that? Essentially, it just means the one who is anointed. The one who has had oil spread on his forehead or her forehead is the one who's been marked with oil. That's all it means, the anointed, the Messiah. And the point is not the physical act of anointing of, with oil. The point is what that physical act represents. That's the point. And so um, essentially what it represents is that that person who was anointed, that's the chosen one. That's the one that's been picked. And so a famous story from the Old Testament, it's a book called 2 Samuel, where this plays prominently, is where the shepherd boy David is anointed with oil by the prophet in order to be the next king. The point was not the oil on his forehead. The point was what that oil signified, specifically that he was going to be, he was marked, right, as the next king of Israel. Sometimes in the Bible, kings are referred to as Messiah. Sometimes in the Old Testament, prophets are referred to as Messiah. Sometimes priests are referred to as Messiah. And many passages in the Old Testament, specifically places like 2 Samuel, all throughout the Psalms, you've heard this phrase, the Lord's anointed, the Lord's anointed, the Lord's anointed. And over and over, uh, people are referred to as the one who has been anointed, and that's a sign that something, they've been chosen for something specific. Now... Through history, this broad, lots of Messiah idea kind of gets focused more specifically on an, a specific individual, on the, capital T, Messiah, capital M. And, and that's what they're looking for, the Messiah, the chosen one, the anointed. And this is who the Jewish people expect to knock on the door. Here's the problem, though. Nobody knows what he looks like. Nobody knows what his name is going to be, Right? And so there's all kinds of varying and often conflicting views about the Messiah. Lots of people have different ideas about who the Messiah would be and what the Messiah would do. Basically, people believe, and I'm talking really basic, they believe the Messiah is going to save us and lead us. Okay, that's that would agree on that level. But beyond that, uh, there was really very little agreement. In other words, how would he lead? How would he save? And that's the question that remains unanswered uh, for the rest of 
um, for the rest of the Old Testament, the balance of the Old Testament. In fact, the Jewish community is still waiting for the coming of the Messiah, right? They still don't believe that the Messiah has, has come. Now, in the intertestamental period, everybody say intertestamental. <laughs> Very nice. Yeah, that's so the, the Old Testament is written and then it ends. And then there's a 450-year period before the New Testament, the first book of the New Testament is written. So we just turn a page, Malachi to Matthew. But there's actually 450 years that happen in that intertestamental period. It's also called the Second Temple Period. And during that time, the Jewish messianic expectations reach a fever pitch because the Jews are getting hammered. They're getting just squashed and oppressed. So they are looking for somebody to save them, and they need them to come really, really soon. They're looking for somebody to lead them. They need him to show up strong, right? And by this point, the intertestamental period, the couple hundred years leading up to Jesus' birth, this is a point of reference, the, um, there's basically three ideas about who the Messiah would be. Basically, three ideas. The first idea is this. They expected a Messiah who would be a prophet like Moses. Prophet like Moses. Moses is a big character in the Old Testament. He figures large. All right, he's the one who rescues the slaves out of Egypt. They've been there for 400 years. He's the one that confronts the most powerful man on the planet, the king of Egypt, Pharaoh is what he's called. He's the one that um, goes up to the top of the mountain, receives the Ten Commandments from the, from the mouth of God. He's the one that leads the people through the desert, right? He, and, and here's the important thing about Moses. He speaks for God. He's the only one who's speaking for God at that point. Right? And, and then this happens. This is interesting. There's even scripture that points to this specific expectation that the Messiah would be a, pro, a prophet like Moses. Moses, in Deuteronomy, writes, The Lord said to me, I will raise up from them a prophet like you from among their fellow Israelites. I'll put my words in his mouth, he'll, and uh, he will tell them everything I command them. So Moses dies, but before he dies, he prophesizes that God's going to raise up another prophet leader just like Moses from among the people. And the Jews, man, they hold on to this idea. This really sinks deep. This resonates with them. In fact, Moses' words in Deuteronomy are quoted by Stephen, who is an early Christian martyr in Acts chapter 7. So all the way in the New Testament, they're still hanging on to this idea that the Messiah is going to come and he's going to be a prophet like Moses. What's important about that? This is the prophet will, or the Messiah will speak the words of God. Okay. That's what's important. He will speak the words of God. Here's a second popular idea about who the Messiah would be, at least during the first couple hundred years before or between the Testaments. The Messiah would be a priest like Aaron or like Levi, or there were several others. And this is a little bit more of a, uh, a vague expectation. There are several passages in the Old Testament that seem to indicate that the ultimate savior of Israel would be a priest, would be somebody who would essentially represent the people to God. So what does a prophet do? A prophet speaks to the people the words of God, right? A priest represents the people back to God. And so there was this second idea that the Messiah would be a priest, and that his, his, his credibility would be all locked up with his purity, that his ability to keep the law of God would be what qualifies him to represent the people, to be like a substitute for or a representative or an attorney for the people. 
right? So there's this conviction, especially early on, that the savior of the people of Israel will be a priest or will come from that kind of a background. And you see this expectation personified in the New Testament in the people called the Pharisees. Have you heard of the name Pharisees before? Jesus is always tangling with the Pharisees. This is a Jewish religious group, highly educated. They're the experts in the law. And, and they always get a bad rap because Jesus is against them, in a sense, because they're hypocrites. And he's always asking about the condition of their heart. But on the outside, man, they're looking good. They're keeping all the rules. They walk the right places. They do the right things. And the people actually really respected the Pharisees. The people... They probably didn't like them too much, but they kind of had hitched their wagon to the Pharisees as somehow their goodness is going to help us. They will represent us who are just lowly sinners before the Lord. So we want to like say, thanks for you guys, you priests who are, who are representing us. And they, they frankly thought that the Messiah would be one of those guys or would be somebody at least from the tribe of Judah. What's the really important thing about the priest thing? The priest would rescue the people. So the Messiah might be a priest like Aaron, or he would rescue the people. And then there's a third expectation, third popular idea about who the Messiah would be, and it's this. The Messiah is going to be a king like David. He's going to smash it down, right? Specifically, in the 150 years before Jesus is born, when there's this big Jewish revolution led by a guy named Judas Maccabeus, they called him the hammer, Right? And he, he leads this big revolution in order to try to restore independence to the Jewish people. He's ultimately uh, put down, but in the next hundred years or so leading up to Jesus, there's several big revolts, there's uprisings. You even read about a couple of them in the early chapters of the New Testament. These are people who basically said, I'm the one, I'm the Messiah. I'm going to be the revolutionary who's going to restore um, independence to our people, who's going to take us out from underneath this oppressive Roman government. And so there's this idea that the Messiah would be like a military leader, a strong man, a king like David. Who's better than David? Who's stronger than David? Plus, again, like with the Moses situation, there's scripture that backs this up. Nathan the prophet hears from the Lord and says this to King David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, David, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood. I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So the idea was that some descendant of David would be the Messiah who would restore the kingdom like David's kingdom, would ultimately kind of bring back the kingdom of God on earth. For far too long, they had had an oppressive king. But if the king were like, if the, if the Messiah were like a king, he would be a good king. What would that mean? It would mean that he would protect them and he would provide for them, right? So we could summarize this big mess of Jewish expectations about the Messiah during this intertestamental period by saying this, they were looking for a prophet, they were looking for a priest, or they were looking for a king. When the knock came on the door and they thought it was going to be the Messiah, they expected to open the door and see either a prophet like Moses, a priest like Aaron, or, and they were really hoping it would be a king like David, somebody who would smash um, into the Romans and win their, uh, win their freedom again. Now, why is this all important? Why did I tell you the big all historical part? It's important because 
what became the conviction of and the message of the earliest followers of Jesus was this, that Jesus is all three of those things. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the prophet. He is the priest. And he is the king. What you're reading about in the gospel accounts, the books like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, is their discovery process, very honestly written with all kinds of, what, are you serious, from Nazareth, and all kinds of, the discovery process of the reality that the Messiah has come, finally, and his name's Jesus, and he's from Nazareth. This is, this, this is the narrative of the gospels. All right, who can tell me the, um, who can tell me the language, the, pr- the primary language that the New Testament is written in? written in Greek, right? Mostly it is written in Greek. Anybody have any idea if I were speaking Hebrew and wanted to say the word Messiah, how I would say the word Messiah in Greek? Any ideas? Christos, right? Christos, which is where we get the English word Christ. So uh, the, the idea of Jesus is being called Jesus Christ, that's not his last name, right? This is the earliest Christian creed, Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Messiah. This is the earliest creed of the church. We found the Messiah. His name is Jesus. And that's why they refer to him as the Christ or Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus all throughout the, uh, the New Testament. This is a fundamental claim of the early faith. Jesus is the Messiah. He's the chosen one. He's the anointed one. He's the Christ. He's the one who speaks for God. He's the prophet. He's the one who's going to rescue everybody. He's the priest. He's the one who is going to establish the rule of God again on earth. He is the king. He provides and he protects. So here's the question that I want to ask. If Jesus is everything the Jews expected, if he's like, he covers all the bases, if he's like the multi-tool, he's like, he covers all of them. He's exactly what, he's, he's everything that they expected. Why do they reject him? What's the problem? Why the controversy? Why do they kill him? And that's a big question, but maybe we could summarize the answer by saying it like this, because they got what they expected, but it was not the way they expected it. He was what they expected, but not as they expected it. So there's confusion when that happens, and usually when there's confusion, there's resistance. Usually, if you're feeling confused, you're just like, yeah, I'm just going to sort of stay away from that. And we read a lot about this in the New Testament. Let me show you a few examples from one chapter of one book in the New Testament. We could almost go anywhere and find this sense of like unmet expectations, confusion around the expectations. He's what we thought, but he's not doing what we thought he would do. John chapter seven. Let me just give you a few examples. There's confusion and there's resistance on the part of his brothers, his own family. Verse three, Jesus' brother said to him, leave Galilee, go to Judea. Galilee's his little fishing town, his little small town. Judea is a big place. The center of it is Jerusalem. That's the big city. Brothers say, leave Galilee, go to Judea, so that your disciples there may see the works that you do. Like what? Like turning water into wine, right? His brothers saw that, but nobody else really saw that. So they're like, go make yourself public. No one wants to become a public figure who who wants to um, act in secret. Since you're doing these things, show yourself to the world. And you kind of get the sense that there's a little bit of resistance or resentment there, because then they say this, or John writes, for even his own brothers did not believe him. Scroll down a little bit to verse 25. 
he's now gone to Jerusalem. It says, at that point, some of the people of Jerusalem began to ask, isn't this the man they're trying to kill? Here he is, he's speaking publicly, and they're not saying a word to him. Have the authorities really concluded that he is the Messiah? They're like, huh, confusion. What's going on here? We heard they were going to kill him. And now they're just watching him teach. Maybe they finally come to agreement. Look at verse 31. Still many in the crowd believed him. They said, when the Messiah comes, will he perform more miracles than this man? The Pharisees heard the crowd whispering such things about him. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees sent temple guards to arrest him. So some people are like, oh, he's the one. And yet other people are like, lock him up. Verse 40, on hearing his words, some of the people said, surely this man is the prophet. Others said, he is the Messiah. And still others said, how can the Messiah come from Galilee? Does not the scripture say that Messiah will come from David's descendants and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? Thus the people were divided because of Jesus. They were divided because of Jesus. Some wanted to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. So there's confusion and there's resistance because he's all the things they expected. And yet he's almost nothing like what they expected him to be. So here's my point. Here's my point. This is what the season of Advent challenges us to be confronted with again. Yes, Jesus has come, past tense. Yes, we believe Jesus will return again, future tense. But friends, Advent is way more confrontational confrontational than the past or some future hope. Okay, Advent is right here, right now. It's that Jesus is here, right here, and right now. Jesus is the one knocking on the door of your heart. Jesus is the one knocking because he's the one who wants to come in. And he wants to come in right now, right here, today. And the fact that Jesus is knocking on the door of your heart, it means more. You're like, oh, I expected that. It means more than you expect. Right? He he may be the one you expected, but he is not going to fit into your expectations. And that might cause confusion for you, and that might result in resistance Maybe when you hear Jesus wants to come into your life, you think, oh yeah, I've already done that. I did that when I was eight and I was baptized and it was beautiful. And I want to say, I'm so glad you did. That's so great that you have a a past relationship with Jesus, that you have a track record with Jesus, that you've been in relationship with Jesus for a long time. That's so beautiful. That's so good. But I want to caution you and myself against the very common error of putting God in a box And thinking, oh, I got this all figured out. I know exactly what it means to be in a relationship with Jesus. I know what it's like when Jesus comes into your life. I want to caution all of us against the very common tendency of becoming so comfortable with the presence of Jesus that you think you know what he's doing. You think you know what he wants to do. You think maybe his work in your life is done. The truth is, friends, Jesus is the prophet. He speaks the truth of God. And we believe that, and yet we still resist it. We still resist it. The truth is, Jesus is the priest. He rescues us from sin, and yet we still think or often act like we can do it ourselves. We still do that. The truth is, Jesus is the king. 
He conquered more than the Roman Empire. He conquered sin. He conquered death. He is the true protector. He is the true provider. He is the king of kings. And yet, we still want to be in charge of our own lives, don't we? We still want to like preserve control over this and over that. We know all this. And yet, we forget all this. And so we need to be reminded of all this. That's what Advent's about. We know all this, but we forget all this. And so we got to remind each other of, about, about all this. Advent invites us to prepare for Jesus' coming, to be open to what he wants to say to me today, to be open to what he wants to rescue me from today, uh, to be open to submitting my life to him as Lord Today, last year is a cop-out. Last year's too easy. You're not there anymore. We're talking about right now. Jesus is continually coming. You take the all-too-convenient, safe sidestep if you're going to say, well, let me tell you about my past or let me tell you about my hopes for the future. That misses the point of Advent. It misses the point of why we do this every year because Jesus wants to come into your life right here, right now, today. Right? So if, if the season of Advent confronts us, and maybe it confronts us like a knock on the door at two in the morning, and it's jolting to you. I hope that it is. Essentially, if it is that knock on the door and you open the door and you see that it's Jesus, this is essentially the question that will be asked. Is there room? Is there room? Is there room for Jesus right now in your life? Is there room for Jesus right now in your home? I'm kind of disappointed with how things are going right now in my home. All right. So is there room for Jesus in your disappointment? Would you welcome him into that space? Well, that sounds kind of scary. That might throw some rocks around. All right. Is there room for Jesus in your fear? Will you welcome him into that space where you are afraid? Or are you going to lock that down? Could you open the door to that space as well? Jesus is going to show up, but he's not going to show up the same way he did last year. Jesus is going to bring his sense of presence to your life in a way, but it will be very different. You might not even, gosh, is that Jesus? Because he's going to do so in such a way that is unexpected. And the question will simply be in that unexpected part of your life, you didn't think he was going to show up there. Is there room for him there? Will you open the door for him even there? Is there room for Jesus in your career? Oh, man, I'm on the 25-year track. I got like four years left. No. Is there room for Jesus in your career? Is there room for Jesus in your finances? Oh, I've been doing the same budget for like six years. I'm pretty, that's kind of comfort zone. Is there room for Jesus in your budget? Is there room for Jesus in your relationships? Uh, we've kind of figured out it's going to be like this. Well, if he knocks there, will you open the door? Is there room for Jesus there? Jesus is continually coming to us. And he doesn't typically show up exactly like we expect him to. And he doesn't do, typically do, exactly what we expect him to do. But his desire is to come into your life. His desire is to speak the truth of God to you. His desire is to rescue or save you from your despair, your discouragement, whatever it is that, is that you need to be rescued from, and his desire is to be the king of your life. And so will you let him in? 
to be your king, to be your prophet, to be your priest, to be your Messiah, to be the Christ? Will you let Jesus be who he has come to be in your life today? Right? Let's pray together. I want to give you just a few minutes, uh, maybe a little bit more than normal, because um, I want to invite you to, to consider that question and to speak to the Lord about it. Is there room? Is there any room left? So Jesus, we expect you to come and we expect you to show up in ways that are unexpected. And I pray for grace for us. I pray for grace, courage and clarity to welcome you in to our plans, to our pain, to our hopes, to our daily struggle, to today. God, give us the grace to welcome you in. Say, yes, there's room for you here. Would you please come in? I need the word of God. I need a rescuer. And I will submit to you as king. I pray, Lord, that you would lead us into a season of expectation this Advent, that this would not be just an empty tradition, but that we would encounter you in a fresh and new way. Would you be born again in us? in this time, in this season. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen.